I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Incredibles and The Incredibles 2. Showtime. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for, for 10 minutes? I'm at the top of my game. I'm right up there with the big dogs. Girls, come on. Leave the saving of the world to the men? I don't think so. Super ladies, they're always trying to tell you their secret identity. Think it'll strengthen the relationship or something like that. Edna Mode. Your suit can stretch as far as you can and still retain its shape. Virtually indestructible and machine washable, darling. That's a new feature. <laughs> Message complete. Stand back. <laughs> This is a commissioned show for Stark, Maximum and Sofa. And we are going to be tackling each film independently, one after the other, because watching them now, at the time of recording, makes for different experiences on both. Now, around about the time the internet learned to find the thing you love and tell you that despite the author's stated intentions, it is in fact insidious and terrible, and a slew of articles about The Incredibles being an Ayn Randian objectivist screed on the part of director Brad Bird just pinballed all over the clickbaity columns area of the internet, each and every one of them deliberately ignoring all the material that contradicted their bad faith argument. And we have since had more than 15 years of Zack Snyder actually directing objectivist screeds, which makes this material much easier to differentiate. We're going to be more granular in what we do. However, that is not to say that this, the sixth Pixar movie, released all the way back in 2004, is not without problematic implications. And Brad Bird can certainly lead us down alleys that leave folks attempting deconstruction, like ourselves, clinging to the tangible fact that he is an inherently decent chap. We want to make good faith arguments here. You'll also have to excuse us as it is currently about 100 degrees in the UK and our blood is boiling and we aren't allowed to put fans on or they're going to seep into... The, like It would be... in the background of everything we were saying. It would sound terrible. But I feel like as our blood evaporates, we're probably going to sound terrible anyway. So it'll be fun finding out, racing against time, <laughs> to see if we can get this one done while we're still alive. Now, for historical cinematic context, when The Incredibles emerged, we were still four years off the MCU beginning with Iron Man. We were four years past the mediocrity of Bryan Singer's X-Men, which made superhero films good enough to be popular, but we were still only two years after Sam Raimi's Spider-Man presented an actual game-changing massive summer blockbuster, and it would still be a year before Christopher Nolan began his mature trilogy of Dark Knight films. Incredibles is obviously also analogous to Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four, with three out of four power sets present from the outset, the fourth 
subbed out for the speedy abilities of the Flash, or potentially Quicksilver, and the Human Torch powers exploding out of the baby near the end amidst a bunch of others. Bear in mind, this was a year before Tim Story directed the first of two utterly flat and forgettable Fantastic Four live-action films. There would be a third from Josh Trank before Incredibles 2, and one would assume that Marvel right now are thinking, fourth time lucky? I am, however, fairly certain that Marvel will catch what Fox missed three times, namely that Marvel's first family is first and foremost a family. Either way, I feel like we should go back to the Fantastic Four films, the four Fantastic Four films. Let us not forget the Roger Corman version that was never supposed to see the light of day. No, please, let us forget. <laughs> he would want us to. He would want it. But what this means is that along with Spider-Man 2 that came out the same year as The Incredibles, this movie is still, to date, the best Fantastic Four film ever made. But not only that, for its era, it is one of only a handful, maybe four or five, really great superhero blockbusters. It's also easy to forget that this was also the first Pixar film about actual human beings. Albeit enhanced ones. There had been humans in the Toy Story films, in Monsters, Inc. and in Finding Nemo, and they presumably occupy the outer world of a bug's life, so Pixar had to step up their game to animate living things that were the closest subject matter so far to the to be stylized versions of us. And you can see the way they animate hair and water and facial expressions that they really like this is like it's it's easy to take for granted now when you watch this and then you've got things like brave and inside out and soul and turning red to look at as well but this really was kind of a jump forward for pixar when you were sat down at the time this is also amazingly only our second brad bird episode. We covered his masterpiece The Iron Giant in 2014, but have yet to touch one of Sharon's favourite Pixar's, Rakakuni. Nor, <laughs> nor have we touched his lone Mission Impossible, the slightly less memorable than most of them Ghost Protocol, and his weird, depressing, live-action Tomorrowland sci-fi. I feel like we're going to be doing an after-school club on that at some point. And for all his experience in animation, from 80s Disney work on The Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron, Oliver and Company, and The Little Mermaid, thence to The Simpsons and Family Dog, Brad Bird treats the landscape like he's shooting a stylish, live-action, super-espionage movie with inflections of the later Connery Bond films. He moves the frame around to give us a sense of scale and pulls focus and blurs certain parts of the image to make us feel like we're looking through a camera lens. He presents an image in 239 to 1 widescreen, which was rare for animation in those days. And occasionally he goes to almost a roving handheld for POV shots before rushing in and out of the screen for chases. And he deftly applies whip-quick edits to nimbly tell visual stories, especially where any kind of powers are involved. And his buddy, Michael Giacchino, delivers his astonishingly first major movie score. He'd done a couple of movies you've never heard of before this. Michael takes to the task like a duck to water, crafting a score that evokes John Barry and Lalo Schifrin, playful yet tense, tinkling the wooden xylophone, softly blowing on the flute, and slamming the brass, coming to a peak with the legendary 100 Mile Dash, 
which could be used to teach composers how to make their score accentuate every second of film for a single sequence. So we're going to talk you through this movie, and I have points to make in its favour and strikes against it. Mostly the former, couple of the latter, even though we start with a few of the latter, because the beginning's actually one of the more questionable sides of it. When Brad stumbles into maybe a mixed message, or a weird message, or... I'm going to, again, giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he didn't know this was quite what he was saying, uh, and, and, and it would be interpreted so poorly. When we begin, uh, the frame is much more of a slim sort of retro shot. It almost looks like something that you'd see on an old 60s TV. And you've got Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, prior to being married, uh, talking about being a superhero, very much in sort of like... Uh, it's, it's not just the interviews, it's behind the scenes of the interviews. It's all the raw footage, and they're kind of... Uh, they're, they're telling all, but at the same time, they're maybe telling a bit too much. I'm, I'm putting this as not so much strikes against the characters, but strikes against Brad Bird's view on being special, which is we're going to come back to again and again. Not so much in an objectivist way, but maybe edging a little bit closer. He defines himself as a centrist, which to me has kind of a toe in libertarian territory. Considering that this was in the context of these films were not intended to be political at all, I think he's using centrist in the context of, I don't want to have this discussion. Mm. He probably also said centrist back during the Bush administration, Bush 2, which meant a different thing to what it does now. Yeah, the Overton window has shifted. Yeah. Centre does not mean centre anymore. If you uh, look at what Bob and Helen say in this early stage, back when they were kind of at the top of their game, Bob seems actively resentful in a way that he voices aloud that he has to keep rescuing people, almost like he shifts a little into... Dr. Manhattan territory. He does. And I, I will say... This is like I, the kid-friendly watchman. Yeah. I, you're right about this opening being one of the more questionable elements of it. And it is the fact that it does feel like Watchmen. And it feels like Watchmen because it is Watchmen. Hmm. We we get to... To the point in... where if you've seen this and then you read Watchmen, you go, it's a bit like a less fun version of The uh, Incredibles. Hmm. But <laughs> if, you, if you read between the lines in terms of how this world came to be as it is... Because there's there's certain elements to it that are immediately intriguing. The fact that everything feels like late 50s, early 60s mm. in terms of aesthetic and music and tone. Dun, dun, dun. And yet the tech is way ahead of anything that, mm. that they should have had at that point. It does feel very James Bond. Um, so it feels like the, this is a world that got into the, uh, the baby boom economic... Uh, idealism mm. of the late 50s. America's and then, clearly flourishing. You've got the golden age of air travel hinted at in here yeah. as well. And then superheroes turned up. <laughs> and it, it's almost... I don't know how much of this is implied in the actual film or whether this is just in my inference on my part, but it feels like people started being born with superpowers. They started becoming vigilantes. They did reasonably well at it. 
things were on a roll and the government got behind them and they cleaned up their mess and they covered their tracks and they insured them and, you know, made sure that things didn't go horribly wrong and gave them safety nets. It seemed like the superheroes were part and parcel of the America's golden age. Yes. And then it turns... And all of that government support gets withdrawn. And that's what makes them drop. Hmm. And it turns in the most child-friendly possible way. I mean, if you look at stuff like The Boys, it could have gone so much worse. Indeed. Could have gone worse here. There is death in this movie. Death, 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 death. Uh, the ultimate, the, the original sticking point comes when Bob... Out on his rounds. First off, he he has a save the cat moment, little quite literally, but he's sort of unable to save the cat because the cat's irritating. And again, this is emblematic of of Bob trying to help, but it's almost like help me, help you, cat. But it also lines up the fact that Bob, unfortunately, is the kind of guy to whom every problem is a nail because yeah. all he has is a hammer. He's all got he this, is is a hammer. Indeed, he's got this cat up. A Motherfucker trip. looks exactly like the thing. He does. Um, he's got this cat up a tree, and his solution is uproot the tree. Mm. Really, Bob? There wasn't another way that he could have dealt with that? What he needs is a smart sidekick. Yes. Which is ironic. Which is ironic, because that's what he gets. He gets, but he doesn't want, and the smart sidekick's terrible. <laughs> well, I was thinking of Helen, but... But that's the thing. Like, that Bob thinks about settling down on camera. Like, mm. he's thinking about it, and then, like, and when we meet him, he's in a tuxedo because he's on his way to his wedding. That that whole setup that they're, they're getting involved in these events that are going on, and from saving the cat, he then rescues somebody in a different situation mm. and then has to jump onto a bank being robbed, and then something else happens... And there is this real feel of when having put himself in this situation, and we can assume that at this point he stands for all the supers in this environment, Mm. having put himself in this situation, he is jumping from crisis to crisis to crisis, squeezing life in in the little gaps in between. Yeah. You're slightly displaced in terms of time because the America we're seeing is the one out of Catch Me If You Can, and yet the, I'm going to sue you, you you saved my life and I didn't want it saved, is a dark reflection of the, the spate of suing in the 90s, which Brad Bird definitely lived through as an adult. Yeah. And probably working for The Simpsons, there were quite a few frivolous lawsuits thrown at that production company of my kid did something Bart did on TV and so we're going to sue you Simpsons Fox have got deep pockets Ooh, I just had a thought what? well these are all boomer kids aren't they mm-hmm. which potentially and, and there's no indication at this stage that this the super thing goes beyond the generation that they are mm. they've only been doing it for a few years because they're just coming of age and thinking about getting married and settling down so is it possible that they are the result of something that happened in World War II? Maybe, but we don't have time to speculate. That's true. <clears throat> so the the people reject superheroes roundly. They're, they're, uh, they're cast out and sued out of uh, jobs, and the government grant them amnesty and then relocate them. So they become kind of this hushed-up little, okay, we tried this, it didn't work, and so now they walk among us. And this was part of our, our, our documentary. You know, and, and here's what Bob Parr looks like with a domino mask on. <laughs> Uh, so if you see the someone, the man looks- is seven foot tall yeah. and six foot wide. Come on! 
He wasn't six foot wide then. He becomes six foot wide. His shoulders are very broad. That's true. He's built like a Dorito in those days. <laughs> Whereas later on, it seems like he lives off mostly Doritos. So yeah, Bob wanting to settle down and, and trying to sort of like seeking a, a, a regular life is actually something that turns up in superhero fiction again and again and again. Ultimately, it is the push-pull of the calling to do something better and the inclination to just set this sword and armour down. And ultimately, this is part of the problem. If superhero is something, or if, let's drop the super, if hero is something that you are, not something that you do, it is very difficult to let yourself put it down and put it away and have an evening or a weekend or a holiday or a life without it. This is why it's so important for Superman to have Clark Kent, to Mm. be Clark Kent. Yeah. This is why Clark is not a mask. Clark is a connection, a conduit. Mm -hmm. And And a way to not burn out. But Clark likes being Clark. In the best versions of Superman, he is comfortable being who he is. He doesn't have to be a goofball who's like, oh, Lois, I can't do anything. That's just Peter Griffin. Clark is at home with the version of him that was raised by Jonathan and Martha Kent. And Bob isn't at home with being the version of him that the government put in the cubicle. When we see him, he is... Like, the, the the whole frame is constricting around him. All of those bright, rosy colours from seemingly not all that long ago, maybe just a little over Violet's lifetime ago. All of those rosy colours are gone. We're now to a sort of a muted grey, which actually is more in line with the 50s than the 70s. Mm-hmm. The 70s was when... Asian orange. Colour TV turned up and everyone went, fuck it, use all the colours! <laughs> Except for wallpaper, which yeah. was beige. And whatever we do, don't in any way balance anything. No. Dear God. But yeah, but what is Bob doing? He's working at a shitty bureaucratic insurance company and a little old lady comes to him. I was, when I first saw this, I was like, is that the same lady who had the cat up in the tree? Because it really seems like her. It, it, it feels appropriate if it is her. He's still trying to help this one lady. And he is... Not not allowed to help her, but in the same way that when I worked for Interflora and I got fired for the same... Th- I can't believe it's the same thing. I was... A little old lady called up and was like, oh, well, well, what kind of bouquet can I get for my granddaughter? And I was like, oh, God, this this poor... And she was like, well, my pension comes in on Friday and I want... And I was like, oh, my... Okay, right. Uh, get these... It's the cheapest, and you get free postage. And I sort of, I, I, I sent her in that direction. But they monitor the calls, and they caught me making down-selling. sure she down selling when I was supposed to be upselling. Mm. Now, obviously, this little old lady that Bob's helping is clearly in a much worse state than just wanting to get some flowers. But Bob gets in the shit about it. They just fired me with a text. Bob gets dragged into Wallace Shawn's office, and Wallace Shawn as Gilbert Huff, is the worst person in this film, even worse than Syndrome, frankly. Uh, He is an arch-capitalist, and I was watching him carefully to go, are there signs of of objectivism here? No, he wants Bob to fall into line. uh, I wrote that they want to squeeze Bob into an uncomfortable shape 
uh, of, a, of a cog. Mm. And then he said, we all have to be cogs in the machine. I was like, well, that, that's perfect that's then. That's that then. I, I did wonder, actually, if he knows who Bob is mm. and is part and parcel of the government's attempts to squeeze him into a shape that doesn't fit him. Because the fact that Vi is like, what, 15 14, yeah. 15 at this point. But they've only been in this house for three years. Mm. That means they they've had, had to, to move. They've had to move repeatedly, yeah. And they are somewhere that's not their choice, mm. which means that Bob is probably in a job that's not his choice. Mm. It's going to be witness protection situation again. They're all having to... Which um, is an incredibly stressful way to live. Absolutely. He's got to eat noodles with ketchup like a schnook. <laughs> he doesn't have to. Something that occurred to me, and this, I don't know why... This hasn't come to me watching this before, but it did today. At this point in the film, I love Helen, but I don't like Helen very much. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which is tough because Holly Hunter is luminous. She absolutely is. Um, oh, and she was in an objectivist screed. <laughs> I'm sorry, because this is the best scene in the movie. And let's oh, just yeah, you're take right. it you're back totally a little right. bit, dude. This is the best part of the movie. She's like, all right, Superman. Now I got a laundry list of stuff to accuse you with. Now let's just get right down to to Because the thing, uh, <laughs> Superman could... And you're like, what the fuck? And she's like, you follow her gaze and she's looking and there's a mason jar on her desk filled with piss and it says Granny's Peach Tea. And she's like, problem being. And then Congress explodes. (laughs) A jar of piss is a plot point in a Superman movie. Here's a question. How did he, who got that jar of piss into Congress? Big question. Like, oh, uh, oh, this is, this is, this is a a glass for the senator. It's a creepy mason jar that smells like piss. Could you please put that in front of her? Yeah, there's no top on it, so you can definitely smell that piss. mm, She is from Kentucky. (laughs) Hey, I'm sorry. Am I the only one here who's a doomsday prepper? Better get used to that taste now because when the water supply dries up you're going to be drinking it too we hate movies skewering pomposity once again the difficulty that I have with Helen at this stage of the game is I don't know why she's doing what she's doing playing Susie Homemaker hard yeah she is it's not so much the fact that she is forcing Bob to do things that he doesn't want to do because ultimately Bob is a grown up and he signed up to this but she is making her children live in a way that is counter to who they are. And she openly says it's because they have to fit in because this is what society expects of you. And she does it with such a jolly Obviously, face. Obviously, this is shit that she needs to get past, and by the end of Absolutely, the film, she is. Absolutely, and by the end of the film, yeah. she does. But at this stage, I don't know how she got here, and it is never explained. What has she gone through? What have they threatened her with? that she thinks this is protecting her children. Because ultimately, given how her motivations evolve over the film, that's the only thing that could make her try to squeeze herself in. She's Elastigirl. She can squeeze a lot better than the rest of them can. Mm. But only thinking that this is the best thing for the kids is what I think would make her do this. But we don't see how she's come to that conclusion. So Dash torments his teacher... And we as the audience are supposed to go, yeah! And then Bob supports this by going, yeah! You were using your superpowers to put a tack on your teacher's chair and get back to your seat without being caught, even on camera, and the guy looks like a crazy person. And he's totally supportive of of Dash's acting out, which obviously sends Dash mixed messages. Um, 
And I'm kind of with Dash too, because this guy's a dick. And I was a class clown and a troublemaker as well, though that didn't make me happy. But the movie is with Dash. He's adorable. Dash needs channeling. Yeah. And Vi needs recognition. And neither of them are getting that from their mother. And that's one of the reasons that I hmm. get very frustrated by Helen's behaviour at this stage. Dash also wants to race against the other kids. This... To begin, like when you see it the first time, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, he's, he's good at running. He really wants to run. But the more you think about it, you think that's a really odd thing to want. I know he wants to be recognized for his running, but he's so fast, it wouldn't even be a question as to whether he can beat the other kids. Mm. And at the end, him almost winning and actually coming in uh, as it third on his own terms is exactly the same controlled as, 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 as rushing it anyway. I think what it boils down to is there's a slight dissonance between what Brad Bird is saying and the medium with which he's saying it. He's talking about artists and that what they are as superheroes is something they're innately born with, these talents, but those aren't things that you can really practice in the way that art can be practiced freely in society. Indeed. Art can't be practiced freely in a fascist society, but effectively they are living in a society where they can't practice their talents and their abilities, which at the same time, it's just them that's oppressed here. <laughs> Because they are a vast, 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 vast minority. Mm. And yet, at the same time, of course they're talented. Of course they, they want to, like, channel this into helping people. But it's all kind of mixed up in this whole desire for recognition as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's about, for this family, it seems to be about expression of who they are. Mm. And we don't know how that sits with other superheroes because the only one we really see is Frozone. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to bother him in the slightest. He's he's he goes along with what Bob wants to do, but he doesn't seem to feel the need to desperately use his frosty powers left, right and centre. You sure? I feel like he's trying to recapture a little bit of that. A little bit, but I, I feel like if Bob wasn't doing it, he wouldn't be doing it either. Side note, Will pointed out uh, that that cop totally shot Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, he did. We have no idea what it's like for the other um, superheroes because they're all dead at this point. Yeah. Notably, the sticking point for Bob is when Wallace Shawn has him in his office and is about to slip him a fucking, uh, uh, either a, a disciplinary or a, a straight up his walking papers for helping this old lady out uh, using bureaucracy, which is even, like, that's the worst thing for him. Because technically what Bob did isn't illegal, and it's just gaming the system in a way that they only want to be able to game for themselves. It's the reason that people who have, like, highbrow accountants who are able to hide and sequester money away and use loopholes want to keep that level of accountancy and law really fucking complicated, because if everyone was doing it everyone would be able to sequester money in a way that would make everyone special, question mark? Just for the record, by the way, I my engagement with American bureaucracy has been minimal. Mm. It, it extends to um, visa waivers and um, customs cards when we've, on the, the rare occasions that we've travelled to America. I am so, so sorry 
guys, that you all have to deal with this shit. I don't know who designs the paperwork in your country, but they need to be put up against a wall and shot. It's appalling. Or put up against a wall and made to do paperwork for yes, years. Yes, there are paperwork. Years. Yes, everyone's paperwork. That's much, yes, that's a much better solution. Thank you. But like, we like to seek out non-lethal means I, of punishment. Bearing in mind, I work in like local public service and mm. have done for decades now, and I. Am, and then every time they hand in a large stack of papers, they'll be told these are all the mistakes you made. You got to go and refill these out in triplicate. I am dedicated to the principle of making things plain and clear and understandable, and it ticks me off horrendously when something doesn't do that and clearly appears to be doing it on purpose. Mm. But this works in the film's favour because there is a philosophical core here in this scene. A man is being beaten up within Bob's view in an alley at the front of the alley. You can practically see Peter Parker in Spider-Man 2 walking just past that same alley thinking to himself, should I save that guy? No, I'm not Spider-Man anymore. And I said back when we covered the Spider-Man films, just because you're not Spider-Man doesn't mean you can't go, hey, there's a guy being beaten up for his wallet in here. You don't even have to go in and try to physically intervene. Do something. But no, Peter decides that not being Spider-Man means he literally has to abdicate all responsibility in Spider-Man 2. He only takes back that responsibility when Mary Jane is put in danger. However, for Bob, it is... It is abhorrent to be able to see this man being hurt and not be able to do anything about it. And eventually, in a dark turn, the man is robbed and left potentially for dead. Uh, And psychotic little horrible man, uh, played by Wallace Shawn, who's lovely in real life. However who resembles, if nothing else, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was storming up and down the halls the entirety of the time that Brad Bird was at Disney. And this guy bears more than a little resemblance to Lord Farquaad in Shrek, so I feel like there's just there may be something in this. Uh, he's all about toe the line. It is ultimately one must remain absolute, like morally vacuous. It's not about what's right and what's wrong. It's about the bottom line and not helping a single person if that act doesn't get you money. Bob's definitely not doing this for money. He's not even really doing it for recognition at this point. At this stage, he's just he just wants to help that man because it's the right thing to do. That's the most altruistic moment of The Incredibles because he's helpless. And ultimately, he ends up striking out and lashing out against this shitty boss and who is representative of the entire system and paying the price for it. He loses his place within that system. He loses security and he loses his masculinity. Effectively, he is stripped of everything, his status. He can't even tell his wife he's that ashamed. Honestly, I would say that's not his most altruistic moment. His most altruistic is when he helps the little old lady because he does it within the parameters of this job he hates. It does not allow him to show how strong he is or how fast he is or anything like that. It doesn't give him personally any kind of uh, satisfaction. It's just the fact that he's helping somebody. That's true. Honestly, one could look at these as two parts of him linked by a single... Like, you did this, alarm bells went off. You wanted to do this further, alarm bells started clamouring in your ears telling you, don't you dare. And Bob lashes out and pays the price, like I said. 
Another big series of points in the favour of this film is the application of the powers to the personalities and the character types and the designs of this family. Violet wants to be normal to the exclusion of her powers, which she doesn't like. She almost considers them a curse. She's not super dramatic goth, oh why was I given these powers, but the powers themselves mimic her own need to be invisible and not looked at by people whom she is embarrassed to be around. Absolutely. And also the force fields, which is a, late, a later power for Sue Storm, pushing people away. Mm, yeah, absolutely. They're not there for, to protect anyone else apart from her. And ultimately, all she's using them for at this point is to get rid of her brother who badgers her because it's his only form of entertainment. Yeah. Like I said, the fact that uh, that Vi desperately needs recognition, but every time her anxiety says, don't see me, nobody does. She yeah. disappears. Dash's speed powers obviously mirror his uh, youthful hyperactivity, but they really get the fact that his brain is moving incredibly fast as well. He's not super smart, but he... Like, it's easy to see how everyone else is moving very slowly to him. Yeah. And it annoys him. The, the fact that his inability to express himself through physical activity, which he would much prefer, mm. is manifesting itself as what can only really be described as mischief. Yeah. Suggests that, like Ooh, you said, you're in that it's, mischief. it's not necessarily academic cleverness, but the momentum of his thinking is building up this mm. energy that has got to come out somewhere. Helen's powers physically manifest how tightly and how far she is stretched as a wife, a mother, an ex-superhero, a person in official government hiding, when her kind of being hunted down, and a woman in her own right. She, she there, There's nothing left of Helen for her. That's actually one of the good things I particularly like about uh, Incredibles 2, is they go, let's focus on Helen now. Like, 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 what would Helen be doing if Helen could do what Helen wants to do? Mm. It's kind of similar to Bob. And Bob is blunt and big, too big, too big for this world. There's a lovely, sad little moment where he, after being admonished inside his cubicle and the little old lady leaves, his little cup of pens falls sideways. And you just, you're aware that he can't move a finger without knocking things over. He is too big for this world. As someone who is quite clumsy and six foot tall, which feels way taller than most people in this country, I feel like six foot's average for everywhere else, but as someone who's quite big and clumsy myself, I feel for Bob. Like, I, I've spent my life accidentally bashing my elbow, my knuckles, my knees, my foot on tables, walls, corners, edges, cups liquids fly sideways when I enter the room. <laughs> it's ridiculous. He's exceptionally strong in the physical and in the immediate, but he lacks self-control and internal strength. He cannot live in the present. He's constantly drawn backwards to a rosier past. But even further than the immediate past, it feels like he's an ancient berserker who, you know how Marv was described in Sin City? Mm. Trapped in the constrictive modern era that has no use for any of his talents and would rather squeeze him into an uncomfortably small cog shape so that he could be slotted into the machine. It's the bad days, the all or nothing days. They're back. back. 
You, you're right, actually, and I didn't think of this before. Bob is trapped in the past. Helen is constantly fretting and, and obsessing about the future and what will go wrong mm. if they get found out again. And who is it that brings them back to the now, darling? <laughs> Edna Maud. Also, it's uh, worthy of note. The movie takes cheap shots at Bob's increased weight between the past and the present. It does. It was the teaser. But that's kind of the point. The teaser was, imagine if Superman, like for, for want of a better uh, superhero analogy, uh, retired and got out of shape. And he was just trying to, like, squeeze into his little tidy undies that go outies. And uh, they, they end up pinging all over the place in this teaser. And it's it's very memorable. It's not even in the movie. That's one thing I love about Pixar, especially back in the day. They would make teasers that aren't in the movie mm. to sort of showcase what the movie's flavor and tone is. Do that. Make a two-minute thing that's, that sort of gives people an idea for what the movie is but isn't actually from the movie. We we do still try to show far too much VFX for big films to the point where it does. It, it's actually quite a pleasure to see a film that has stuff in it that wasn't in the trailer. When you're like, oh, this this feels new. I feel like I'm I'm getting extra film here. Such value for money. <laughs> we paid for the damn thing. The trailer was free. <laughs> so yeah, Bob gets poked at for being, my God, you've gotten fat. However, I took exception to this regarding Fat Thor because The Incredibles exists. They did that joke enough times in this first one, it never really needs to be done again. And Fat Thor was doing it again and again and again and again. And ultimately, the reality is depressed Thor. Really darkly depressed Thor. Well, depressed Bob. Ultimately, the reason that he, quote unquote, lets himself go right. is because he doesn't have a purpose. He doesn't have a reason to exercise. He doesn't have a reason to. But that's the thing. The Incredibles is there for kids. Mm. And you can kind of like, you, you soften that depression for the kids with yeah. that. With Endgame, you don't need to go that soft like Thor's been through such shit mm. ultimately him being on the verge of tears all the time and that not necessarily being all that funny would have been quite enough yeah. so I just wanted to make sure that people were not like hey you uh, you were on about fat Thor what about fat Bob So then Bob jumps at the chance to covertly utilize his real talents for a lot of money. He hides his side business from Helen and his firing, lying to her face. Like he doesn't just go, oh, I'm, uh, I'm off to work, honey, and, and sort of bend the truth. He straight up makes up conferences. He does it out of, and I've put fragile desperation to hold on to this fantasy. More that, like, it's not just about the fact that his masculinity has been shattered by, by this. It's not uh, to prove that he's a man. It's not even to prove that he's a, a hero. It's a chance to revisit the past in a way that no one knows about and that he actually gets paid for so that he can still tell himself he's being the breadwinner to bring home the bacon. He literally says that. It's 
It's a way for him to feel like himself again. This reinforces his identity on every level. Like you said, he gets to be a hero. He gets to do big physical things in a big physical space. He didn't have to apply for this. He was sought out. He was headhunted, indeed. Somebody came after him and said, you, you're the man. We want you. To destroy our Iron Giant. And he is able to, like you said, still bring the money home. He gets his passion for Helen and life, generally, back. This is elevating all of those aspects of his identity that he has dropped along the way as their, their life has followed this path. But he never has to self-examine to get any of it. It is all just handed to him. Yeah. He's encouraged to indulge in it. They know what they're doing. Mm, it's not like an, an accidental side thing. Ultimately, he's being watched by Buddy. And he goes to see Edna Mode to get his suit repaired. And Edna is a little Ayn Randian. Like, her voice is actually not a million miles off of uh, Ayn Rand, who was a horrible person. Check check it out, L look her up. Ayn Rand became famous for her philosophy of objectivism, which is a nice way of saying being a selfish asshole. Why is it good to want others to be happy? We can make others happy when and if those others mean something to you selfishly. Rand illustrated her beliefs in novels like Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead stories of rapey heroes complaining about how no one appreciates their true genius. My work done my way. Nothing else matters to me. And if that reminds you of anyone, it's probably someone like this. Until I'm done with my Lamborghini entrance, no one's allowed it. Make sure they know that, because if they start letting it out, they'll start kissing. What about my entrance? However, Ayn Rand is an unlikely hero for conservatives, because she was also pro-choice. A man who claims to defend rights and objects to the right to have abortion, that's no defender of rights. And anti-God. I am against God for the reason that I don't want to destroy reason. And in case that's making you start to fall for her, take a listen to her views on Native Americans. I do not think that they have any right to, to live in a country merely because they were born here and acted and lived like savages. Why would conservatives hold up as their idol someone who says things like that? Especially when there are so many other advocates for selfishness they could choose. Like Donald Trump. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Ayn Rand. How is she still a thing? Thank you very much. Last week tonight. Edna isn't anywhere near that horrible, but the way she talks about <laughs> she literally says P-F-E-G-H. It is an expulsion. She she talks about having to uh, design clothes for supermodels. The idea that they, they call themselves super, but they're not. She's designing clothes for mere mortals, but she has these fountainhead statues of these giant gods that she used, used to make. I used to design for gods! Yeah. Edna okay. is tiny and very self-important. She absolutely is. Edna She's is also hilarious and like totally eats the screen. Yeah. Edna and is voiced is, by Brad Bird. Edna is my favourite character in this. Mm -hmm. She is totally scathing of everything that isn't her. She is extremely 
morally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And we know she designed costumes for superheroes. We don't know of any other designers. Can we be sure she wasn't designing for the villains as well? If everybody in the world was like Edna, the world would be a horrible, horrible place. Agreed. Thank God there's only one of her. Thank, exactly. But the the range of characters in this, there is a spectrum of how people behave and how they interact with the world that actually feeds into what has now come to be my core thesis on the movie. But I'll wait until we talk about Syndrome before I... I go to that specifically but Edna has this whole she's detached from reality she's completely detached like she lists off when she's telling Bob the no capes speech which is one of the funniest bits in the whole thing she is rattling off death after death after death after death these people were her colleagues and she never shows even a flash of emotion about any of this yeah I put uh, down here weirdly detached from her part in multiple cape deaths very much so yeah Um, and also when Helen comes to see her later she actively stirs the shit to make something happen Mm. she does not care whether it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing she just wants something to happen I put that too she manipulates the family into coming out as superheroes endangering them to fuel her ego she is uh, I was trying to think of her equivalent in the Marvel Universe she is Tony Stark of clothes if Tony Stark was Robert Downey Jr's Sherlock Holmes that level of eccentric and and, uh, and self-aggrandizing yeah but because all she does is make their clothes she's not ever going to be asked to go out there and do hero stuff Mm. It's sort of okay. Okay may not be quite the word I'm looking for there. It's tolerable. Tolerable, darling. Is that what you say? Mm. Lily Tomlin was asked to come in and voice Edna Mode and then heard Brad Bird's, I suppose, placeholder voice and said, with the confidence of someone who's just a a, a true dame of the uh, silver screen, what do you need me for? You've you've got this already. Mm. Yeah. Lily Tomlin's awesome. She is. <laughs> now, Syndrome, when we meet him, this giant troll played by Jason Lee, is the embittered inventor aspect of Doctor Doom, not the I have to rule that varia and uh, mine is a heavy burden for part of Doctor Doom, but very much the curse you Richards Doctor Doom as well. In his exact words, you can't count on anyone, especially your heroes, because he was let down by Bob, who was deciding... Much like any Batman who's like, get out of here, kid. I do dangerous things. You're going to get killed. Mm. Uh, Like, Bob was looking out to make sure this kid didn't hurt himself. And, you know, said, you're not affiliated with me. And then you grew a horrendous anti-fan. A hate boy. That's what happened with Riddler in The Batman. Syndrome is much more objectivist than anyone else. He's the one who's decided, I'm going to do science stuff. I'm going to become rich off it. No, says the man in Washington, it belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican, it belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow, it belongs to everyone. I do think that something happened to Buddy 
probably many times over before he even met Bob. Oh, yeah. Because the the reaction he that had he had... He had pinned so much on Bob. Exactly. Yeah. He's been let down by father figures and mentors and teachers and anybody who was supposed to mm. give him any kind of guidance. He got a little raw shack in there. A little bit, yeah. Because his the response that he has to what happens with Bob, that is not the kind of response to something that's just happened once. Yeah. And his uh, whole, after everyone is special, no one will be. He is, this is potentially, uh, like him inventing these this brand new amazing technology potentially has a very positive outcome. But it's not at all for altruistic reasons. He doesn't want to make people special because he wants to make people special. He has, like, he'll save the best inventions for himself, so he'll be the most special. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, his whole, when everyone's special, no one will be. This is, again, another kind of a questionable, I'm not sure that's actually what Brad means. For a start, he's the villain of the piece. So most villains spout wrongheadedness. Yeah. But even if it sounds compelling, they're villains for a reason. Mm. Even if they are right, if they were prepared to hurt fewer people than the hero, they'd be the hero. The humans. They will tire of you. They have already turned against you. Leave them. Is it them or us? Which holocaust should be chosen? Everything in Tomorrowland that uh, Bird goes on to do, they're not just trying to create and hoard uh, you know, technology so that they can be the special people. They're actually actively trying to help mankind. That's, that's what Brad Bird seems to, to be actively supporting and be behind. The idea of so I don't I don't even really think that he's all that um, libertarian because there's a meanness to libertarianism which never seems to really come across in any of Brad Bird's films. Yeah, I think if anything, he's guilty of maybe getting a little giddy and drunk on his own astonishing talent that everyone praises and that he wants to praise other people who have talent and say, "Look, you can achieve this greatness." Mm. The problem is that that's not everyone. Indeed. <laughs> and it does kind of come down to a case of some people aren't really meant for this stuff. Yeah. And they get to be around the people who are talented, mm. which can be quite alienating to general audiences if they start thinking about that too much. Indeed. I do think he can be very naive. Um, I do think he can be blinkered. Um, but ultimately, what what I kind of take from from Syndrome and his where he comes from and, and how he ends up developing his approach to the world and what he chooses to do, the essence of what I get from from how everybody's part in this plays out is an iteration on what we've discussed very recently that being good isn't something that you are, it's something that you do. People's actions, the things that they choose to um, manifest in the world, will help or hurt or simply just toddle along in the background, not really not really doing anything for anybody. And that's how it distinguishes the heroes from the villains. But if you look at their motivations and what sits underneath it, they're not that different. It's about... for, for Syndrome, Edna, Bob, 
Vi, definitely, Dash, definitely, Helen to an extent, and even Mirage a little bit. It's about being seen, being recognised and being understood. That's why they do what they do. There's a scale to it. At the extreme end, you've got Syndrome, who wants to be looked at and adored. He hasn't come out to the world yet. He's been planning this for a long, long time, getting rid of all the other superheroes so he can be the only one. He ultimately wants to fulfill his childhood fantasy of being the Incrediboy, the Incrediman, with his troll hair, and he is setting up theatrics so that he can create massive property damage, scare people. Uh, it's effectively a false flag operation. Yeah, well, and this is the thing. He will fake things so that people will see him the way he wants to be yeah. seen. He doesn't want to be seen as a villain, but he'll take it if they won't come to him on his own terms. And at the opposite end of the scale, you have Tom Holland's Peter Parker. And, and yeah, I would love to play football. But I, I couldn't then, so I shouldn't now. Sure, because you're different. Exactly. But I can't tell anybody that, so I'm not. Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. So you want to look out for the little guy, you want to do your part, make the world a better place, all that, right? Yeah, 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 just looking out for the little guy. That's what it is. Peter doesn't want recognition. He doesn't want to be celebrated. He, in fact, freaked out, rightly so, when everyone realised who Spider-Man was. Mm. Peter is driven to do the right thing all the time. He is a wonderful person. And I, I love the way that Holland gets that across. And in the middle, you have Bob, who does want to do the right thing, but does also kind of want to be celebrated for doing that right thing. And to a degree, there you also have your Tony Stark, who's like... I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. With this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes i made, largely public. The truth is... I am Iron Man. I'm not going to keep hiding this shit. What's the fucking point? I'm already famous. I may as well be famous for doing this. By the way, there is a line in Iron Man 3 where uh, Happy says, uh, you know, I say I'm Iron Man's bodyguard. I'm a laughing stock. And it's like, no, all the other bodyguards are like, that's so fucking cool. I have to guard Elon Musk. And Helen will avoid doing the good thing the right thing to not attract attention yeah to begin with i feel like um we only just saw this recently in far from home mysterio quentin beck like he he was doing the false flag operation he's he's like setting up these fake robot fucking things syndrome and he's he's like you know i've got all this technology i got fucked over by tony stark back then he said i wasn't incredible and i am and he wants to be celebrated and then he spites peter because he gets that taken away from him mysterio was a dick yes so was Syndrome. Also, when you were looking at those big robots with the kung 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 arms, were you thinking Ancient Guardians from Breath of the Wild? Yes. Yeah, I was like, yeah. just get rid of one of those legs. Mm-hmm. They are far less mobile Absolutely. that way. 
Also, they may have a weak spot underneath for massive, massive damage. damage. But Syndrome's riff, again, in this film's favour, Syndrome's riffing on monologuing. You had me monologuing! Along with the uh, the capes line and quite a bit of other sort of lampooning of existing superhero tropes, things that we just sort of take for granted, did help boost superhero movies. I think that had a, 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 an actual knock-on effect on Marvel, whereby they could be a little bit dry about the whole superhero gig and game. That led... This... I mean, you could actually draw lines to Tony Stark from this. In that whole kind of, yeah, I'm Edna Mode, but also the superhero. To that end, this is kind of like the prototypical MCU movie. It's it's so strange that we'll actually be getting a, a Fantastic Four movie that probably won't hit as hard as The Incredibles did when it did. Because there's already been a whole bunch of disappointing ass ones. It's gonna have to have a thing that everyone loves. And I mean a thing. Like a, a, an ever-loving blue-eyed Yancey Street thing that everyone loves. I know what you mean. However, as Jenny Nicholson pointed out, the tech-assisted pretender to being superhero Syndrome is defeated by a baby born to two apparent homo superior mutants from a family all born with exceptional powers. Likewise, Remy the Rat is born with innate talents. He's got synesthesia, which none of the other rats, none of his brethren, none of his other little ratty brothers and sisters seem to have. With the best of good faith arguments, in Brad's world, talent can come from anywhere. Brad himself was born in Montana. If you were going to assume he was a genius at anything, it would probably be, based on where he grew up, world-class cowboy. But using this language and with these restrictions, you cannot learn genius. You are simply born special. But if you're like Linguini in Rakakuni and you are happy to serve a gifted raccoon artist, you can make good use of your life in that way which is a bit patronizing. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. But also, the I still don't think that quite makes it enough to slide into, um, like, the objectivist... No, 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 super, no. ...super ubermensch type mentality. Because the thing is, the I... people who espouse the ubermensch mm. don't look like the ubermensch. No. Hitler was not six foot six with blonde hair and blue eyes. No, he looked a bit more like Edna. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um... Oh my god, fact, now I'm imagining Edna with a moustache. No, it's, it's, an awful it's lot just worse. Ayn Rand with a little Hitler tash. <laughs> the idea that you are born superior tends to manifest itself in people to whom superiority means family wealth or already owning a shed load of stuff. It's not actually about talent. It's not about being born with, with superior gifts. It's about things that the existing societal structure says you're superior for. Also, there's, there's, for these fuckers, a hell of a lot of it is based on the trampling aspect. They really like trampling. Yeah. And none of these superheroes want to trample anyone. Yeah. Um, while I am well aware of the fact that very occasionally there are Olympic champions who turn out to be complete shitheads, by and large, they're not trying to dominate the world. Yeah. And if it was all about that physical superiority, you'd expect to see sports champions tearing down dictatorships every day. 
However, the most important aspect of this film is that a frustrated family of isolated individuals at odds with both their powers and the world, and definitely with each other, are able to come back together as both a family and as a super team, united against a common asshole. The family are able to combine their powers in a way they've never done before, because they've never had to, in playful, inventive new combinations to be better than they would be on their own. That's not about supremacy, that's about being able to work together to make the world better. However, in another strike against the movie, the film neglects to tell us what the government did about all those common asshole enemies. The supervillains. This began when Mr. Inc Monsieur Incroyable uh, kind of messed up foiling Bomb Voyage. Now you can hide all the superheroes, but do you also contact all the supervillains and say, could you, could you not? Could you not rob banks because it's, it's uh, inconvenient? Th there's a big question mark regarding what the fuck happened there. <laughs> In Wanted by Mark Millar, the supervillains took over the planet after they killed all the superheroes. In Powers by Brian Michael Bendis, the supervillains were all as messed up as the attempted heroes. In The Boys, the heroes are worse than the villains. In this, Syndrome is able to hunt down all of the heroes in hiding and murder them, with nobody in the government helping out whatsoever the living heroes or warning anyone. Rick Dicker, in particular, as their contact, is asleep at the wheel, and he's about to get way more negligent in The Incredibles 2. However, this original film was ideally placed in 2004, as I said, to be a really good influence on superhero movies moving forwards, with emotional arcs at their core, and jaw-dropping delightful action set pieces, memorable and distinctive ones, not just dude punching or robot scrapping. It is at once a satire of Silver Age superhero antics in a perpetual Kennedy-era 1960s, and an earnest depiction of a family having real trouble communicating and finally getting through that. Did you wash your hands? With soap? Did you dry them? What? Is this all vegetables? Who wanted all vegetables? I did. So, are we going to talk about it? Why? The elephant in the room. What elephant? Mom's new job. It's time to make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, Dad. They want us to do it this I don't way. know that way. Why would they change math? Mm, math is math. Okay, math Dad. is math. Hello? Hey, honey. How are the kids? Everything's great. Ah! Is she having adolescence? And Jack Jack? <laughs> He's in excellent health. Num num cooking! Oh my god! Cooking! Whoa! Gay! That is freaky. You know it's crazy, right? To help my family, I gotta leave it. To fix the law, I gotta break it. 
You've got to, so our kids can have that choice. Thank you, young man. Combustion imminent? What does that mean? Ah! It means fire, Robert. Green Slater interrupts this program for an important announcement. Suit up. It might get weird. I'll be there ASAP. Where you going ASAP? You better be back ASAP. Okay, Incredibles 2 from 2018. Uh, the most important thing to bring up here, the most important, uh, is Jack-Jack Attack which won't be entirely familiar to everyone who's seen The Incredibles, but will if you had the DVD or the Blu-ray, which it was also on. Uh, could you tell us what Jack-Jack Attack is, Sharon? Jack-Jack Attack is about the incident... It's a deleted scenes. It's a bunch of deleted yeah. scenes. Yeah. It's, it's the other side of the voice messages that Helen receives while they are recovering from the events of the island. <laughs> And it's what happened with Kari, who is the babysitter. A babysitter! Great voice performance, by the way. While she was looking after the baby and um, trying her best not to be a really bad babysitter. Yeah. Jack-Jack keeps exhibiting strange new powers. One of the running themes... uh, Well, one of the running... Not gags, but uh, storylines. It's a very uh, muted one. Is that Jack? Jack doesn't seem to have any powers. He's he's a like Maggie from The Simpsons. He doesn't he doesn't exhibit anything. And they all come out for Kari uh, in a terrifying way for her. Like you know, he's he's blasting stuff all over the place. Th- this clearly proved popular with a lot of uh, audiences who saw it. And I feel like Pixar and Brad Bird got all the wrong messages and drew all the wrong conclusions from the popularity of Jack-Jack Attack because it makes up the B-plot of Incredibles 2. Not let's move on from there and let's, uh, uh, you know, let's see what that entails to a family. Let's just do that again for about 40 minutes of this movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the conclusion is just, oh, you have powers? And that's the end. There's also a, uh, a short, which I hadn't seen until today, called uh, Auntie Edna, where Edna Mode babysits Jack-Jack and has a Jack-Jack attack, where Jack-Jack has powers. So it's a deleted scene from within a film based on deleted scenes from the original movie expanded to feature length. And and it's just, there's, there's a lot of Jack-Jack attack in... Incredibles 2 and indeed the short attached to Incredibles 2 and you can see them both on uh, uh, Disney Plus and frankly you should see Jack-Jack Attack even if you just see The Incredibles and Jack-Jack Attack you've seen the best of everything Mm. yeah although I do really like Auntie Edna because it is revealing of a little more of Edna's character even if it is just more of the same thing you do love you some Edna mode I love me some Edna mode and she's barely in the rest of the film yeah that is true actually doesn't doesn't make as significant a mark as the first one yeah Mm. yeah So, this is hilarious, 
But Jack-Jack is a little overpowered for the sake of comedy, folks. He catches fire, for starters. He turns into inert heavy metal. He multiplies like gremlins. He fires lasers out of his eyes. He teleports. He passes through solid matter. He generates powerful, visible electricity, turns into a small fuchsia pink hulk, defies gravity, grows to immense size, shrinks to miniature size, becomes invisible, sticks to the ceiling, can give himself whatever wig he wants. That's a new one. And possesses some kind of telekinesis. Comedy aside, folks, John's life is going to be hard. Elsa had supreme trouble and multiple breakdowns throughout her life trying to control just Frozone's powers. So I think I went a little bit short on that one. Jack-Jack's life is going to be an endless nightmare. As is anyone's who ever gets near him. There is a line, it's a throwaway line that Edna makes about young supers often have more than one power and i don't know how i've got this impression whether something else was said but that they kind of extra ones disappear you're thinking of demons older. am i oh, okay Fair where they settle in philip pullman's yeah, fiction i am aren't i i mean it, 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 they could settle but let's just put it like this jack jack is going to kill someone real fucking soon so On this bombshell, let's begin Incredibles 2. They haven't aged. 14 years elapsed for us. And many of the original kid audiences got old enough to get married and start families themselves. These guys are preserved in amble. No time has passed. We begin where the last film ends. We do. It's it's literally days after, if that. No, no, it's minutes because they're dealing with the Underminer. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, it's the the date with Tony is it's, still it's forthcoming. A bit later, yeah. Tony's hair's changed. So's Jet. So's Dash's somehow. Everybody's hair has changed, and that was that was something that made me go, "Ooh, maybe they should have like." dialed that back a little bit because in the 14 intervening years Pixar got way better at hair uh, the animation techniques have improved dramatically as a result not only does everybody have slightly floppier hair uh, but Bob has this five o'clock shadow Mm. that makes it look as though he's aged but no one else has he's haggard (laughs) he is my god you've gotten haggard Seemingly nothing has been learned from The Incredibles. They almost hit the reset button at the beginning of the film. Helen slams down and goes, nope, we're not doing that again after the Underminer thing goes wrong. Basically putting them back to square one from the original film. Yep. Which causes the kids endless frustration. And the kids, by the way, they got to shine in that first film. They get fucking nothing to do in this film. That's Violet and Dash. Jack-Jack gets a ton of the same thing over and over again to do in this film. He absolutely does. It's just Sweet Pea. It's just, uh, you know, running around, Popeye running around trying to stop Sweet Pea falling off a building site. Mm. But it's a baby that's got loads of powers. I mean, that that worked so well in a little short that could be added to an existing film. That is not a B-plot. But... Take away from the in-world, nothing's changed. Because, I mean, there are other films that do that, none that spring to mind, but there are other films that that re- we start off again 14 years later and nothing's changed. Mortal Kombat Annihilation springs to mind. <laughs> it was only like four years later, but everyone seemed to be much more haggard and they'd, sw- they'd lost all their talent and become different actors in yeah, most cases. I was just about to say, they lost an entire Johnny Blaze? Johnny Blaze? Johnny... Template. Bravo. Johnny. 
Johnny Blaze wins. <laughs> Rotten. Johnny Rotten. Yep, that's the Mortal Kombatter. Yeah, he, he'll punch you right in the dick. Okay. <laughs> That's why they call him Johnny Rotten. Anyway, you look at the real world. This means that The Incredibles ignores, and it does, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, Mark Webb's Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, and Tom Holland in Spider-Man Homecoming by John Watts. Three fantastic fours, just count them. I know you won't. <laughs> All but two of the X-Men movies. Only the first two were out when the original Incredibles came out. Hancock. Remember that one? Green Lantern. That's probably best if everyone forgets Green Lantern, as we found out when on our recent revisit, which you can check out on the Patreon, folks. Iron Man through Infinity War. I don't, like, that's most of phase one, two, and three. This came out after Infinity War. Mm-hmm. What the actual hell? The Avengers, sealing superhero movies made by people who actually know and like comics as the new hotness for the 2010s. The hotness for the 2000s was, oh, I've never read comics before, but my kids love them. Uh, and that, those kind of directors doing it. But, you know, suddenly, somehow, Marvel stepped in and, and I don't know, they, they found the magic formula, which is to give a shit about your characters. The Watchmen movie came and went. Both. Brandon Routh in 2006, two years after the original Incredibles, and Henry Cavill as Superman. The entire Dark Knight trilogy and the Snyderverse came and went. Because if you like, if you count the Justice League theatrical release, that was the end of the Snyderverse. There was a bit left over. What we call a post-credits deleted scene. Yeah, I mean, basically, let's <laughs> face it. That's what the Snyder cut is. Yes. Um, <laughs> The CW shows, you know, Flash and Arrowverse, they were keeping a certain contingent of superhero fans who like seeing on-screen stuff happy. Lego Batman, Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is a really good superhero parody movie. And Deadpool. The Incredibles 2 was a huge, unexpected and unlikely comeback of one of the original greats. Like I said, it was one of the only handful of only a few really good superhero films in the early 2000s. They needed to bring Wonder Woman levels of greatness to this second film. But in a year, 2018, of Black Panther, Aquaman, and Into the Spider-Verse, Incredibles 2 felt like a short that you would get on the Incredibles 1 DVD, only it's two hours long. Not only did it feel like a relic from 2004, but following the releases of genuinely amazing Pixar originals like Wall-E, Inside Out, Coco, not to mention Brad Bird's own Rakakuni, and amazing Pixar sequels like Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, this instead felt like Finding Dory, Cars 2, Monsters University, an utterly superfluous sequel that adds nothing to the original, and in fact, because of when it was actually released, and how little it accomplishes, and how it accomplishes that little, it makes the original feel a little bit less special. Uh, until we re-watched it for this one, I had forgotten how good the original Incredibles was, and what a massive divide exists between one and two. It's huge, yeah. You folks at home might be like, I can't believe you're talking this absolute tummy rot, but we are going to go into it, folks. We're it's gonna, we'll show you our workings out. Much more acute when you watch them back to back. Yeah, it's like, uh, I really like Temple of Doom. I'm sure you do. 
But if you ha if you go into Raiders of the Lost Ark on a granular level and talk about it with the level of detail and passion that we did, and then the next week you come back and you try to examine Temple of Doom, it's a lot harder. Because you're like, oh, there's nothing. There's nothing here. Does not stand up to examination. Collapses like a flan in a cup. Great fun to watch, I'm sure. Not really to get anything out of. So, Dicker leaves. He's like, well, poor Bud Lucky died. He, he was the narrator for Bounden. You remember that one? The bound, Bounden, rebound. Lovely man, lovely voice. Voiced the original Dicker. He died very shortly after uh, the original Incredibles came out. I think he was even um, given a like full Bud Lucky uh, and remembering Bud Lucky on the DVD. But uh, Dicker leaves taking no responsibility for Jack-Jack's unspeakable powers that only he knows about. He is top men. Jack-Jack is the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes, okay, so you got an Ark of the Covenant there and, um, well, my job is done. I'm leaving. Let them find out about this when a Denny's explodes. They're staying in an old crappy motel like the one at the end of Poltergeist, which is kind of perfect for Craig T. Nelson. Uh, Helen slaps down the idea of any kind of superheroics within her family, walking back the entire point of the Incredibles bonding and finally being able to communicate. They then don't communicate for the rest of the film. It, it just, it sticks us back into, it's, it's, it's the, I, I don't want to call it lazy. I think they were trying to do something but it has patterns of lazy sequels. You know, like when in Ace Ventura 2, when Nature Calls, they were like, right, here's those lines, like a glove, loser, may I ask you a bunch of questions? Like, let's get Ace to say those things again, and, and we'll take away the transphobia and add racism. That's Ace Ventura, not The Incredibles, which isn't especially racist or transphobic. It's, it's that kind of, like, playing the hits where it's like they don't trust that the audience will like an advancement of the original so they just kind of regurgitate the original in in mostly the same form just without any of the brilliance yeah well it, it replicates almost the entire same narrative is not quite the word that i'm looking for but the the structure of it yeah the, the plot structure of it is almost exactly the same the the fact that oh no the person hiring you to do the awesome stuff and be a superhero turns out to actually fucking hate superheroes yeah the, the villain with a very personal motive one of the the uh, pars being having a shot at getting the glory days mm. back and, and the other one feeling themselves. left out in the cold and the other one feeling left out and isolated they amp up the whole aren't men stupid because oh man can't take care of a baby yeah. this thing is exploding yeah. no one can take care of a jack jack no <laughs> superman would have a job but the fact that like when helen leans into the whole yay i get to be elastigirl again bob gets incredibly Envious, yeah. frustrated, jealous. It's it's not funny. No, it's it's sad and annoying because you've just seen, like, if you watch them back to back, you've just seen them actually really work through this stuff. Absolutely, you've just... all those wonderful emotional bits in the original that that catch you off guard and just resonate. They've just been forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, and Helen's response to it is almost identical to, uh, initially, before obviously everything starts to fall apart, is almost identical to Bob's, in spite of the fact that casual observation will reveal that they are different people and respond to things in different ways. Mm -hmm. The only major difference between them is that Helen's totally truthful about what she's going out to do. Mm. 
and Bob's horribly uh, envious, whereas before, Helen was lied to and fretted horribly. So, <clears throat> Frozone really does seem to want to recapture the old superheroics, I was right, but that doesn't really come into it that much. Uh, they, <laughs> if you haven't seen this film, they kind of get invited via business card, which made Willow immediately go, wait, what was the last thing that happened when you got given a business card? To the home of an eccentric billionaire who's like, I want you superheroes to be super again. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob Odenkirk sounds like a slightly older, gentler version of Jason Lee. He does. He's the red herring, but he's also Bob Odenkirk. If you're an adult listening, you're like, well, he could play really evil and snake-like, you know, so he's obviously a villain. And then his sister enters, Catherine Keener. And if you've seen Get Out, you'll think, on the on the teacup with the teaspoon, you're like, no, it's her. I don't even. She hasn't even said a fucking word yet, apart from the fact that she. I now know she's Catherine Keener. Is like, why is she the villain? And then she tells you her entire motive for being the villain, and you're like, oh, okay, so it's it's her then. And then you spend an hour of the movie waiting for Helen to catch up with you. My God. It's a kind of script writing which necessitates your characters being very, very unobservant. It's infuriating. Especially as kind of part and parcel of being a superhero is there's a bit of detective work going on in there, like especially with hidden villains doing stuff like that. And the last thing was very much a hidden villain deal. Being a hero in this world often seems to get reduced to turn up and punch the thing that we know needs to be punched. And have a costume. And have a costume. Untrustworthy, enthusiastic billionaire Bob Odenkirk and his definitely not the actual definite villain sister Catherine Keener turn up and they talk about their crazy dad. Their crazy dad, back in the day when superheroes were, uh, were hot shit and everywhere, I'm going to say 15 years because we never get told exactly it, but I'm just going to guess a bit more than Violet. Yeah. Okay, uh, 15 years ago, was really into superheroes. He like posed for with them and had a phone that went to Gazer Beam, who's basically Cyclops, and was it Pyronic, who I'm assuming makes fire come out of his hands and has a cape? Mm, probably not going to be... Probably not going to end well. Uh, he has like a, a special pair of red phones that call their houses and badger them just in case anything bad happens. Like, oh my god, gangsters are overrunning the city. I gotta call them. Burglars come to the house and Dad decides, instead of going to my panic room with my wife who's begging me to come to my panic room, I'm going to finally get a chance to use my crazy superhero phones. Gazer beam. Oh, he's not picking up. Pyronic. Oh, he's not picking up. Oh, the burglars have got into my, this room with me in it. And they're just going to straight up shoot me in the face with a gun. Even if he had gotten through to Pyronic, and he'd be like, right, you need to get to my mansion really, really quickly. The burglars are going to try to shoot me. At which point Pyronic would have said, can you get to somewhere safe? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a safe room, kind of like a panic room. Why is this phone not in the panic room? Ah. Bang. If you're watching it with an iota of intelligence, you're going, why didn't you just put the phone in the panic room? And like, why? Like, I get you wanted to get the superhero to come around and, and I'm assuming shoot the burglars with his eye beams, burning a hole through them and killing them. 
or setting them on fire so that they would burn to death. What? 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 Even you if, fucking maniac. Even if your solution to burglars being in your house is to ring 999 or 911 and request that the police attend. It's going to take a while for them to get there. You don't just sit there and, go, yep. and wait mm-hmm. for the police if to attend. If you've got a panic room, the police, the person on the phone, you actually used to do this job back here when you were a slave to the fascist system, uh, <laughs> will tell you... Please get somewhere safe. Like, sir, you're a millionaire. Do you perhaps have a panic room? Why is this phone not in it? (laughs) Or a a room with a lock on the door. A bathroom, at the very least. And the the film keeps breaking. It's unbelievable. I'm like, how did Brad Bird direct this? The issue appears to be less. Superheroes are unreliable and uh, cause human beings to be weak. And more... Rich people are think dumb. that people they pay will solve all their problems <laughs> for them. Which, That's an entirely different story. Which calls into question the entire philosophy of the villain of this piece, which thus calls into question the moral back and forth between hero and villain, yeah. making this whole film broken before you've even begun, because they're both coming at it from the wrong angle. Okay. One good thing, because it's just I've, I've I've just done loads and loads of, of strikes against him, and then one little red heart to say no, this was good. Bob Odenkirk's character, we need to change the perception of superheroes. We need to uh, he needs to, wants to give Hel- Helen the chance to be the poster girl for this cultural challenge, and he wants to get Angela Merkel, voiced by uh, Isabella Rossellini, and various other ambassadors from around the world to all agree to shake hands and say yes, superheroes back again. He's depicted as naive. Catherine Keener thinks he's a child. He think I like the fact that she says he thinks that because when Mummy and Daddy went away, superheroes went away. He can bring back the good times by bringing back superheroes there's some psychology in that i kind of like that but i hate everything else about her stupid character yeah this this plan i love Catherine keener by the way and i love the fact that this woman who's clearly exhausted and is up all night all the time she's got bags under her eyes she's always kind of reclining and drinking scotch <laughs> like she's like yeah i was hammering it till 1am no, no no wait i started at 1am i've been up since then hair of the dog I, I like her character, but every time she starts opining, I'm like, this is six different kinds of shit. It may as well be a Transformers. Indeed. Also, uh, Brad Bird's naivety when it comes to political structures. They, they are ambassadors. Mm-hmm. The, he's collected ambassadors from, the way he puts it, a hundred of the top countries in Ooh. the world. Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> Not including those really filthy ones. Do you mean... You know the ones we mean. Do you mean the hundred richest countries in the world? I suspect Ew. you do. But do you, do you know how much ambassadors have to do with the changing of laws in their respective They're in countries? this city for ages. Not, not a great oh. deal. Sorry. You, you need to be discussing this with, like, the actual heads of state. Yeah. Not just the country representatives. <sighs> I retire as president okay. of ambassadors. <laughs> Click. <laughs> oh, that's another thing as well. At the beginning, when the Underminer turns up and crashes through the front of the big, obviously big corporate bank, mm-hmm. did you notice right Was next there a president to it, of bank? No, there's a tiny little savings and loan mm-hmm. that he completely ignores. Oh. Right. <laughs> and goes to the big bank, just reinforcing the fact that this is 
early 60s Americana we love. Oh, it, it, the underminer missed us. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Uncle Billy. Oh, you gave away all the money, you stupid mother. Where's the money? Stay down on the ground, you motherfucker. That's not the dialogue, but do y'all remember that scene from It's a Wonderful Life? Great movie, Frank Capra, 1946. Oh, we're a little wired and it's really hot. I just, I, we're trying to make our ire at this film more fun for you folks because no one wants us to just bitch and moan. Let, let's, just, let's, let's have a little fun with this failure. So, <clears throat> Willow pointed out uh, uh, but for, uh, Bob's, Bob Odenkirk's plan of, uh, like, let, let's, you know, that, that people are seeing the aftermath, the consequences, the destruction. You know, we, we need to see, like, you in action. And Willow said, Body cams. It doesn't work. No, it's called cops, and it's fucking horrible. <laughs> we now get a new situation where Bob looks after the kids quite well. Like he he does maths homework with uh, with with one of the kids, I think Dash, and he does French homework with Violet or something. He's 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 a domestic dad, and like, like honestly, them not going. Oh, Bob can't do anything is good in this regard. The thing that he falls down on is this insane baby with all the powers. It's, 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 it's the fucking Darth Sidious of babies. I, one thing I do like about that sort of side plot, that's not even really the B plot, uh, the whole Bob struggling to be a, a, a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. dad. To do Helen's job that she's but done for 15 years. The fact that there is a point where he realises he's more upset about letting down Vi and Dash mm. than he is about missing out on the superhero activities. Yeah, that's nice. That is nice. That's a strike it's, in its, its favour. It's a... Biscuit. I mean, you blink, you'll miss it. I did blink, and I did miss it. <laughs> but I did. But like I remember it. it from the first time I saw it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, around about this time, Jack Jack has a Jack Jack attack with a common raccoon, not the one from Raccoonie. This is just a regular vermin, and uh, it's got. Uh, there was a point where we both said, "That's just Scrat." Mm. When it was when it was tied up in 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 strange raccoon bondage to a lawn chair and Jack Jack was on fire advancing towards it. I mean it's it's basically like putting the actual Peter Dinklage up against Thor. It just it would be terrible. It would be terrible as a fight. As opposed to the really big Peter Dinklage. Yeah, who could probably swat him about the place. Quite easily, I would think. As far as Jack-Jack is concerned, this uh, trash panda is stealing their trash, and so it turns into a, a, an illumination skit for quite a, a while. And uh, it's it's quite miniony and it's quite irritating. And it's, it's not terrible, but I'm just like, I just I feel bad for the poor raccoon, because he's going to get his head burned off. Another thing that Dicker did before he left and went, Whoop, no responsibility from me, is to wipe... Violet from Tony's head. Not just the date that they were going to go on, but the girl herself. And he says, it's not an exact science to Bob later on. It's like, dude, you've got a suction cup launcher for your men in black flashy thing. You tell me it's not an exact science. Make it more exact. Work out a way that doesn't involve cartoon plungers and actually remove only the bit you need to remove don't go around flashy thinging away all of his trigonometry homework. He won't be able to function. You'll end up with a drooling Tony vegetable. And the Tony thing, by the way, goes nowhere. It's just extra shit for Violet to deal with. And Violet, who is really angry and whiny the whole way through now, like, hasn't advanced at all and has, in fact, gone back even further than where she was at the beginning of The Incredibles. She can't even rationalise. She can't talk through arguments the way that she used to be able to. She's not helpful. It's 
just awful what they did to her character. She goes from shy to confident to brat. To kind of insane brat. She writes in permanent marker on Tony's locker her address. It's a temporary address, you maniac. Just put it on a piece of paper and slip it into the locker with a little heart on it. I don't know. What, what do teenage girls do? Consult Ms. Marvel. Anyway. <laughs> Another point in its favour. Helen gets to meet a bunch of new superheroes, most of whom are kind of weird creeps. One of whom is kind of a portal girl who has blue hair and reminded me a bit of... I actually tweeted Laura Kate Dale and went, is this you, the superhero? Because the blue-haired one, Void, says to Helen, I didn't really know who I was, and then I saw you up on screen, and I felt able to come out to society and show them who I was. And I'm like... I see what you did there, Brad. Well done. I like that. Mm, yeah. The, and they could have made a much bigger thing out of that. They could. The, this this young team... <laughs> One of them is an old bastard. Well, yeah, all right. The, but this... this huh? uh, I'm just watching my stories. This batch of potential supers. He emits a pellet. <laughs> and feels very happy with himself. They seem to want to play two different sides of the coin with them. Mm -hmm. They want to have a group of mostly young, diverse, and potentially sequel baiting. Sequel? No. A batch of second gen heroes. Uh -huh. On the flip side, though, they want to make them all villains. Yeah. And also, they are. And I well, they're not villains. They're con mind controlled. They're being mind controlled, but we don't get to know them as heroes. We only get to know them as villains, and their powers are all Jack Jacks. Mm. The the apart from the one that can fly, although Jack Jack can levitate, um, but they all have powers that replicate themselves in some form in what comes out in Jack Jack. So. The, the powers are appear unimaginative because we've already seen Jack-Jack doing all of this. They spammed the powers. They really did. And the characters are non-existent because we don't get to know them before they get mind control. Kind of like Brian Singer deals with X-Men. Yeah. They're, they're a power and a costume. They are. And they at, at best, they all kind of come across as, as easily tricked and foolish and manipulable because of the fact that they don't quite feel they fit into this society. But so do the Incredibles in this film. Yes. They're also easily they, manipulated. They do as well. Way yeah. too easily manipulated. But there is a distinct difference between how these second-gen heroes are treated and how Vi and Dash, the children of superheroes, mm. behave. And they're much more knowing about the whole powers thing and they, they do not get taken in by... Uh, screensaver at all. Screen slaver. Slaver, sorry. And they're the ones who come up Not too with happy the, about that name. Indeed. Uh, they're the ones who come up with the whole, you know, we've got to get rid of the goggles and therefore everybody will be okay. Mm. Which brings me to my last question. Was it really necessary to punch every single one of the goggles off? Like, there are numerous occasions where they've got somebody prone on the ground. They could literally just take, take them, them off. off. But no, it requires a punch to the face, apparently. A blow to the temple. What could go wrong? Um, 
So, the Screen Slaver's deal is to be the Riddler from the Batman. Excellent. <laughs> is to turn up on TV and bitch and moan about, we don't do anything anymore, we just watch TV. What are you fucking 98 years old? We're always on screens, we don't go on vacation anymore. Yeah, you know what? That reads a little sour when you literally can't go on vacation anymore. Like, we don't talk anymore. We talk all the time! I'm talking right now! What are you talking about? Screenslaver is a bitching, moaning nihilist who goes on and on about the downfall of society and blames superheroes, who, by the way, haven't been around for 15 years. Yeah, whatever's gone wrong over the last 15 years, that's on you. It's not because of superheroes. Literally, the Incredibles just showed up to deal with the Underminer last week. This is a commentary on superhero movies from the past 14 years from the perspective of someone who hasn't watched any of them. But they're the villain, you're supposed to disagree with them. But at the same time, they're also right, because they keep going on and on about how we are slaves to the system, your meaningless consumer-driven lives. And like, there are certain things that they are correct about. The, we, the government want us to be docile, because that's how we're much easier to be manipulated. Like, th there's, there's several calls to action and meetings down at the docks in this particular speech. And I'm like, yeah, and comrades come rally. No, wait, shut up about superheroes for a second. There's nothing to do with Mr. Incredible. It's like, even it, like just in world, it doesn't make a lick of sense. And the screen slaver's deal is to hypnotize people. So she, so a uh, train driver is hypnotized into trying to crash the train. And Helen's like, huh, this is interesting. A train driver was hypnotized. And then a bunch of other people are also hypnotized at a TV station. And she's like, oh my God, people have been hypnotized. And then she finds her way to screen slaver's base, fights screen slaver, and then takes off his mask to reveal a pizza delivery guy who's like, huh, what, huh, huh? And she's like, there, I got you, screen slaver. You're definitely the one. You're definitely not acting like everyone else I've taken these glasses off. Again, this film requires Helen to be stupid. And I'm sitting there in the audience back when I saw this going, come on, Helen, be, be sharper than this. Be better than this. And then, like, during an interview, she goes, something's not quite right here. Come with me, obviously, definitely, Screenslaver. We'll have a long talk about what the Screenslaver's doing and their methods. And, oh, you've tricked me somehow. You've now put glasses on me. Catherine monologues for ages with no comeuppance. It's unbelievable. And she monologues in a way that suggests she totally believes most of the things she's said through Screenslaver. As far as she's concerned, superheroes make us weak. Well, why haven't we gotten stronger in 15 years? This doesn't make any sense. Like, when she was a kid and her parents were killed, she could say, superheroes made us weak. I don't want superheroes coming back. That should be her focus. Uh, there should be no superheroes. It was fine. Don't upset the balance again. But she doesn't do that, and that is unfortunately problematic with how the movie ends up. So then there's a big boat sequence, and they have to sort of punch out all of the superheroes who are now being mind-controlled by Screenslaver, and then stop this massive boat from crashing into the harbour, and uh, Helen has to deal with Catherine uh, in a plane. I don't remember, did she get sucked out and into a jet engine or something, or...? 
Or was that just what happened to Syndrome? It's that is a disgusting Pixar death, by the way. <laughs> like I'm saying that in a good way. Like like it's we don't get enough minced supervillains. <laughs> like I miss what happened to villains in PG movies in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, she gets arrested. She's she's alive at the end. She gets arrested because Vice says, luckily she's rich, so she'll just get a slap on the wrist. Yeah, but this now puts us back to at the very end. Like they they put on all their domino masks and it goes da 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 da, -da. and that puts us back to where they were 14 years ago, or if you're them, a few weeks ago. They've now restored the status quo from the end of The Incredibles, which. <laughs> renders literally everything that just happened in this two-hour movie redundant because they were there already. They didn't need to question this because the question was the wrong question to ask in the first place and it was couched in the wrong terms. They haven't learned anything. I mean, Bob's learned a bit more to be hands-on, but it's, it's not like they worked out a domestic situation where Bob doesn't have to do it all the time and neither does she have to do it all the time. That's something worth talking about. It is. What they actually end up with is, Bob, take care of Jack-Jack, I have to go and solve this problem. Violet, take care of Jack-Jack, I have to go and solve this problem. Dash, take care of Jack-Jack, I have to go solve this problem. No one can take care of Jack-Jack. He's going to destroy the world. <laughs> So, Toy Story 3 in 2010 did what few animated film sequels do, which is to acknowledge the passage of time and that kids grow into adults. If Incredibles 2 was going to explore a world 14 years after the events of the original and make some kind of commentary on the mass proliferation and ubiquity of superheroes analogous to the superhero movies that emerged over that time period, then Jack-Jack should be the age of Kamala Khan. Violet and Dash should be as old as the actors who play Peter Parker and Yelena Belova, which is 26. Both of them are 26, strangely enough, but not necessarily the age of the characters. And Bob and Helen should be close enough to uh, accepting grandparent roles. I mean, the voice actors are respectively in their 70s and their 60s. So they at least need to be in roles closer to an older, more sure of themselves, Ben Grimm and Reed Richards. And it should definitely be a passing of the torch onto the young type film. Mm. But they don't. They they have no intention of that being the thesis of the movie. <clears throat> and I think we all know who Frozone reminds us of. They had the young and emerging superhero subplot here already, but so much of what we see in the two-hour running time is recycled from the original film and from Jack Jack Attack that there isn't much room for any new philosophical stances on the effects of superheroes upon a confused world uncertain as to whether their presence and activity is balanced more towards the positive. Captain America Civil War existed magnificently for two years before this thing puttered onto the big screen to say not much of anything. By the end, I'm not really sure whether there should be superheroes. None of them seem to know what they're doing, including Helen and Bob. They aren't very bright, including Helen which really hurt to watch, nor do they care much for each other. Most of them do in fact resemble the crazed vigilantes in fetish gear from Alan Moore's Watchmen. But in that book, none of those were super, except Dr. Manhattan. Everyone else just decided they wanted to punch crime. Here, we have a world of mutants, seemingly never given powers from science accidents, at least no one ever mentions it. They're born with it. Some have tech assists like Frozone with his super suit, but a hell of a lot of them, especially Jack-Jack, could be considered persons of mass destruction. And unfortunately, 
Because the script for film two isn't at all clever, neither are any of these destructive, unregulated, jurisdiction-free human weapons. They are lacking in control, they're lacking in mentorship, many of them have incredibly fragile egos and are prone to lashing out. It is a frankly terrifying situation, and I would, in this one case, be right there with Tony Stark on slamming down the Sokovia Accords. In a world of nuance, and forethought, responsibility, lasting consequences, and Steve Rogers, that question becomes far more difficult to answer. Steve's fear was that the Avengers should not become answerable to a government that we have seen in recent years in the real world can absolutely fall to right-wing nutjobs who don't care who they hurt, and in fact deliberately hurt people because that pleases their allies and frightens their enemies. In that world, the Avengers must absolutely remain autonomous with government liaisons. But in this world, where the villains are a bank robber with bombs, a guy with a big drill that the army could deal with, and two complete assholes with serious grievances against superheroes in particular, plus clearly over 15 years of superheroes in hiding, the emergency services that it takes to prevent non-supervillain related calamity of the kind that Superman saves people from, like trains derailing, bridges collapsing, they're clearly doing fine. They never mentioned that terrible things happen while the superheroes were in, in hiding and like people falling out of windows and no one saved them. They, that's never brought to attention because the kids in the audience would get upset because it's like, why didn't you help and save them anyway, superheroes? You had to stay in hiding. I hate Mr. Incredible. So basically, it, it would appear that, despite what Bob Odenkirk says, this world, at least, is clearly doing fine without superheroes. And I'd say that, like Alan Moore's venerated masterpiece that I've never liked, because I far preferred The Incredibles, this depressing second film actually makes a conversely really good case for superheroes being outlawed permanently, if only to maintain something of a balanced and safe civilization where the kind of things that happen in the Incredibles movies don't happen. You know, the massive robots rolling all over the place, the boats running out of control, the things that Frozone has to deal with on a grand scale with a large amount of ice. It is shit like this that leads to the boys. I hope it's understood, after all that, that my irritation comes from a place of love and frustration and wanting this to be better than it is, not just wanting to pour derision. I always want everything to be fantastic and nourishing to us. And I would say the original Incredibles is still absolutely nourishing. And speaking of nourishment, School of Movies is brought to you by Patreon. And we like to thank all of our patrons every week, and especially our top tier $15 sponsors who get credit every episode. So thank you once again to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. 
Next week, we will be back with an extraordinary true life tale depicted in two very different movies. It's Philippe Petit and his walk between the Twin Towers in 1974, as covered in the 2008 documentary film Man on Wire, and then the 2015 feature film The Walk, written, directed and produced by Robert Zemeckis. Both of these films are wonderful. I recommend you track them both down. And we'll be talking about them and the real-life events next week as our Summer Commission season continues. So because I've made everyone sad now, I'm going to heartily recommend a 24-issue comic series from the early 2000s written by J. Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5 fame. In this story, Rising Stars... A comet hits a small American town and every baby of the 113 that were in utero in the area at the time of the impact, every baby is born with a different superpower and they're all connected somehow. Rising Stars follows these blessed and cursed people throughout their short and long lives as they try to use their powers for different things and they make a lot of mistakes along the way. Clashing, making allegiances, dying very sadly, or managing to succeed in what they're trying to do. And all the while they ponder the nature of their existence. It is fascinating and challenging and heartbreaking, and it has an ending that truly inspired me. The TV show Heroes was a bad version of this book, especially after season one. I recommend everyone able to get hold of at least the first, it's, it's available in three volumes or the complete set. If you can just get the first volume, try that one out. I think it's worth your time. And if you want something with more teeth than that, but not the boys, try Powers by Brian Michael Bendis. And that will do it for The Incredibles. We hope that Stark, Maximum, and Sofa are happy with what happened, even if we did not like that second one. We didn't like the second one a long time before you suggested it. In fact, you only suggested we do the first one, but I wanted to put it in context, and doing it like this actually does highlight the immense strengths of that original. So I'm, I'm kind of glad we did this, even if I didn't get all riled up and fiery. So I eagerly await the time when Brad Bird can actually reach the heights of his last masterpiece, Rakakuni. And we'll be covering that sometime soon. I'm going to play 100 Mile Dash at this point because it's a, it's a masterful piece of both cinema and scoring. Listen out for how Giacchino describes vast spaces and falls and runs with the soundscape of his music, and how he characterizes only Dash in this film with little wooden xylophones. Remember those uh, shows on British TV in the 80s where they'd show you a bit of a Disney film? This would be the bit they would have shown. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... Scores out, out, darling! darling.